You have to learn to view the culture through the lens of Scripture. You look at your experience through the lens of Scripture. You do not look at Scripture through the lens of your experience. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Open your Bibles to Daniel 1. Daniel 1, we're going to start here, Lord willing, for the next three months or so. So if you'd be so kind, fellow students, Daniel chapter 1. We're going to begin a series of Daniel. The name Daniel means God is my judge. The book of Daniel records, it covers a period of about 70 years from the events that began with the first conquest of Jerusalem in 605 B.C., all the way to the first year of Cyrus's reign, about 536 B.C. As near as we can tell, Daniel was born about 520, and so if he lived to 536, he probably lived at least till his mid-80s. The prophecies in this book cover events beginning in his own era and extend all the way to the second coming of the Messiah and the, and the Messianic kingdom on planet Earth. So it covers an extended period of time. From a prophetic point of view, Daniel is to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. It is the most extensive prophetic overview of God's plan for the ages. Nine of the 12 chapters in Daniel deal with visions and dreams and uh, prophetic events. Now, the book of Daniel is unusual. It's written in two languages, both Hebrew and Aramaic. Daniel 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2 and then all of chapters 8 to 12 are written in Hebrew. And then the, most of chapter 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the Gentile language of the era, and they have to do with God's plan for the Gentiles. Daniel 1 and chapters 8 to 12 have to do with what God's plan is for the Jewish nation, and so therefore they're written in Hebrew. The book is really divided into two sections. There's 12 chapters. Chapters 1 through 6 really deal with Daniel the man. They're quite historical, and they're generally chronological, first six chapters. The second six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are not chronological, they're not historical, they're prophetic, and they don't deal with Daniel the person, they deal with his messages, with a prophetic overview that God gave him. So Daniel fits into the Bible as one of the four major prophets. You know them, Isaiah. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And there's 12 minor prophets. We call them minor because their writings are less extensive. The major prophets obviously had more words, more chapters, bigger books. If you look at kind of the time frame here, let me put this in context. Isaiah's ministry took place between about 740 to 680 B.C. Now you're counting backward towards zero. So 740, you count down 740 to 680, about 60-year time frame. It's about 140 years before Judah went into exile. Jeremiah's ministry began about 50 years after Isaiah died, about 625, 627, and it lasted until 585. Jeremiah was prophesying God's judgment on Israel when Nebuchadnezzar was literally at the gates of Jerusalem. Ezekiel was a prophet in exile. Ezekiel actually went into exile with the Israelites, and he prophesied in Babylon from 592 to 570, about 22 years of prophetic ministry for Ezekiel. And he overlapped Daniel's ministry. Daniel's entire ministry, all 70 plus years of it, was in Babylon itself. Now the difference is Daniel records events in Babylon from the perspective of the palace. He's in the palace, and so he gives us the perspective of what it was like to be in the court. Ezekiel is among the captives, and he gives us 22 years of prophetic events from that particular capacity. It's going to be pretty clear here that God sovereignly placed Daniel in a position of significant authority and responsibility and influence in the Babylonian government to accomplish his purposes. 
There are three major purposes of this book. First and foremost, Daniel is probably one of the best human examples of what true dedication to God looks like. He embodies faithfulness to God, both with his words and his deeds. He and his friends took great risks to remain true to their faith. Number two, the book of Daniel reveals God's faithful care and comfort for his people, the nation of Israel. Even when they're being disciplined, they were in captivity due to discipline, and yet God was faithful to them even when they were under discipline. And the third major perspective is God gives us the major panorama of Gentile history, which we are in the middle of today. The times of the Gentiles are going on as we speak, and we're going to speak at great length about that, Lord willing, in the coming future. The historical context begins in chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, these first two verses record the fulfillment of prophecy. Remember, God had promised Israel centuries before that their occupation of the promised land, the land of Canaan, depended on their obedience to the covenant. If you want to really get some sober reading in, uh, read Deuteronomy uh, 28 to 30, and it records the terms of that covenant. The terms of the covenant are real simple. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. Now, you can use that with your children and your grandchildren. I don't know if your adult children are going to be too responsive to that, but, you know, it's worth a shot. But that's how God works with us, and he worked with the nation of Israel as well. God had explicitly told Israel, the ultimate discipline for your disobedience is going to be expulsion from the land. It's exile. You will be carried into captivity, and Israel, for centuries, in the land of Canaan, disobeyed God, disobeyed God, disobeyed God, disobeyed God, and God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them. And as you know, God always keeps his word. He always keeps his promises. And at some point in time, in God's perfect timing, he brought judgment on Israel just as he had promised. It's absolutely paradoxical that God in his sovereignty would use the Babylonians, the most wicked, corrupt, power-hungry, cruel people of that era, to bring judgment upon his own people. And if you read the prophet Habakkuk, little three-chapter book, he had a real hard time with God using a wicked nation to discipline Israel, who he thought was righteous. Well, God can discipline us as his people in any way he chooses. So when things happen in the world that you don't understand, believe me, God has purpose behind everything. Everything. Let me give you a little historical timeline. <clears throat> uh, there's some dispute, I mean, there's some scholars disagree over timelines, but I'm going to be using the chronology from Barry Setterfield's Creation and Catastrophe Chronology as a template. I think he's done the most disciplined job of, of the chronology. The Exodus takes place about 1585 B.C., 15, almost 1,600 years before Christ. They get out of Egypt, they go to the wilderness, and at Kadesh Barnea, just the southern end, they refuse to go into the land because the giants are too big and God can't handle these giants. God says, fine, wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and they do. The last part of Exodus, all of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, cover that wilderness period. That 40-year period is covered by those three and a half books. In 1545 B.C., 40 years in the wilderness, God uses Joshua to lead the nation across the Jordan River into the land, and that's all recorded in the book of Joshua. The conquest of Canaan takes about 25 years, and that's also recorded in Joshua. After Joshua dies, the nation of Israel experiences about 450 years of a period of rule called rule by judges. And these are God-appointed leaders who God raises up to deliver Israel from their enemies. Now, this is, this, the, the period of judges is really Israel's dark ages. I mean, they are pathetic. They're like us. 
right? The very last chapter, the very last verse of Judges is, in that day there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's exactly where we are now. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want, blah, 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 blah. So God alternates between blessing them for obedience, delivering them when they repent, and bringing judgment on them when they disobey. And they go through cycles of obedience and disobedience, and sometimes it takes them decades before they repent. So when they repent, God raises up a deliverer or a judge, fills them with the Holy Spirit to bring about a military victory. The book of Judges, Ruth, and the first part of 2 Samuel cover this chunk of Israel history. Now, in 1 Samuel, we have recorded the beginning of Israel's monarchy. Monarchy is ruled by king, ruled by one, mono, of course. So the first king is King Saul, and he's anointed about 1096 B.C. He reigns for 40 years. David is anointed in 1056, and he reigns 40 years. And David's son Solomon is anointed about 1016, and he reigns 40 years. We have a unified kingdom, all of Israel, all 12 tribes, one king. Solomon dies in 976. His son Rehoboam takes the throne, and you know the story. He foolishly listens to really bad advice, and the nation is divided into two. Almost had a civil war. The ten tribes on the north and the two tribes on the south. The northern kingdom now is called Israel. So we now have a divided kingdom. The ten northern tribes are called Israel. The two southern tribes are called Judah. So you're going to see that across the board and, of course, that's the dominant tribe in the south. Judah has 19 kings and one queen in their entire history, the divided kingdom. After they split, 19 kings, one queen. Twelve were evil, eight were good. And they, all of them were from David's family tree, David's family line. Israel, the northern kingdom, had 19 kings. All of them were wicked, and they got progressively worse over time. That period of Israel's history is covered in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Covers that entire monarchy period of time. In 722, we've cycled through almost a thousand years of history, after centuries of warning, God finally has had it with the northern kingdom, and he calls Assyrian to invade the ten northern tribes, carry them away into captivity, and they never return to their land. We call them the ten lost tribes, for lack of a better word. So the northern kingdom ceases to exist after 254 years of independence. Just by way of contrast, the United States is about 245 years old today. Fascinating. Not today, but this year. Now the southern kingdom, you would think the two southern tribes would go, aha, we have an example of what not to do, right? The our brothers and sisters in the north got carried away due to sin. Therefore, we should repent and get our act together. Not really. God had sent prophet after prophet to the southern kingdom that says, pay attention to what happened over here in the north. If you don't repent, I'm going to judge you. And of course, they didn't. And so Nebuchadnezzar shows up in 586 as the third invasion, destroys the temple and the city, and takes them into captivity. And the southern kingdom had lasted about 390 years. So that gives you kind of a timeline of the nation of Israel from the Exodus, the point when they became a nation state, and through their history. Let me give you a little geography lesson of what's going on in this region as it relates to the book of Daniel. Both Babylon and Nineveh, Babylon's the capital of, of course, Babylon, Nineveh's the capital of Assyria, are located in modern-day Iraq. Now, the ancient name of this region is called Mesopotamia, which means in the midst of the rivers or between the two rivers. If you look on the map, you're going to look on the east, and you're going to see the Tigris River, and the Euphrates River is on the left. So Mesopotamia began with the land between these two rivers, and the natives there, the locals, had developed an extensive irrigation system, and they pulled water out of the Tigris River and the Euphrates River, and they irrigated. So it was very, very much a, 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 what we call it the fertile crescent because the arable land up there is green. You see the crescent? It looks like the shape of a crescent. And that's where the rivers are. And where the rivers are, you get to grow crops called green. 
The center of that map is yellow because that's desert. So the southern half of Mesopotamia, go to the right-hand side of that map, and the lower half, that's controlled by Babylon, the nation of Babylon, the empire. The northern half of the right-hand side of that fertile crescent was Assyrian. Now, Babylon in the south and Nineveh in the north are about 300 miles apart, just to kind of give you a little perspective. Sacramento's about 275, so we're kind of the same way. But if you had to walk to Sacramento, it would take a little longer than an afternoon, right? Now, if you look at the crow flies, I want you to look at Babylon in the southern part, and then Jerusalem is way on the other side of the Fertile Crescent down by the, by, by the Mediterranean Sea. So you're going way up the Fertile Crescent, Babylon, all the way to Jerusalem. If you just cut that triangle and you go straight across the desert, it's about 500 miles. But they never cross the Arabian or the Syrian desert because there's no water and your camel can't live that long. So they all followed the Fertile Crescent. They followed the rivers north. And so if you wanted to go from Babylon to Jerusalem, it was about 900 miles. And you took a caravan and it took about four months. So it was a much longer route, but you couldn't cross the desert because of heat and lack of water. So Rob's going to leave that up there. I'm going to be referring to that till we get to our first bullet point. Assyria, the northern kingdom, controlled Mesopotamia until about 625 BC. Now they assigned a regent over Babylon in the south named Nabopolassar. And in 625, he rebelled against the Assyrians and began a period of conquest over about a 12-year period, he conquered most of the Assyrian Empire. In 612 BC, the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, fell, and Babylon became the new regional power at that point in time. Now, if you go way down the other side of that fertile crescent on the south, next to the Mediterranean, you're going to see this land called Egypt. Egypt's getting very nervous about Babylon's growing power, and they marched north through Israel all the way to the top of the Fertile Crescent. Think of a horseshoe. They're going to the top of that Fertile Crescent. And there is a city up there called Carchemish. And Carchemish is a very, very famous site of a battle. In May, June, 605 B.C. at the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the crown prince, the son of Nabopolassar, and the general of Babylon's armies, defeats the Egyptian armies. Now, he's crowned king in August of 605, and so he goes back home to take over the throne because his father dies, and then he comes back to Palestine and attacks Jerusalem in September 605. Jerusalem is attacked three times by Nebuchadnezzar. This is the first one, September 605. And while he's there, he takes the very best of the human talent out of Jerusalem that he can find, for his government training program in Babylon. Daniel and his three friends, among others, are captured in September 605 and taken back to Babylon. Now in 597, a few years later, the king of Judah rebels, a coalition against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he takes about 10,000 Jews and brings them back to uh, Babylon and Ezekiel is included in that second deportation. So Daniel, the first deportation, Ezekiel, the second deportation. In 588, Judah rebels again. These people are a little slow on the uptick, can't learn. Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he says, I'm done. I'm going to destroy the joint, down to the ground. So he lays siege to Jerusalem, August 15th, 586. He breaches the walls, burns the city, tears down the walls, slaughters the people, exiles the survivors. He takes all the treasures from the temple, the king's house, brings them to Babylon, as you can see in verse 1 and verse 2 here, puts them in the temple of his gods. Now, when you defeat an enemy, the real deal is, my gods are bigger and badder than your gods. That's why we kicked your you-know-what in the battle, and we captured you and burned your city, so your gods and all their goodies, all the temple gold, back to the house of my God in Babylon. So Daniel 1, chapter 1, begins with Daniel and his three friends in Babylon immediately after Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion. 
So chapter 1, verse 1, begins in about 605 B.C. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 1, verse 3. Then the, That's a long introduction. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years. At the end of that time, they were entered the king's personal service. Here's the principle. Potential is wasted without preparation and training. So care enough to prepare. Potential is wasted without preparation and training, so care enough to prepare. Now, Daniel and his three friends are most likely of the royal line. They're clearly nobility because that's who Nebuchadnezzar was training for. They were selected on the basis of physical appearance, brains, and future leadership potential. They were literally Israel's best and the brightest. I mean, he, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted the cream of the crop. He's looking to build an empire, and he needs all the human talent he can get, regardless of whether that talent comes from a foreign nation or from his own. And this three-year training program was designed to educate them in the language, the customs, the knowledge of the Chaldeans, and to train them for future leadership. So he begins with language school. He says, you're going to learn to read, write, speak Chaldean. Uh, Aramaic was the language of that culture. And they also probably studied agriculture, architecture, astrology, astronomy, law, mathematics. So it was a very intense three-year training program. By the way, just in case you're wondering, excellence is never automatic. Excellence is never automatic. You never drift your way into superior performance in anything. And Christians should be superior performers in every area. We have the Holy Spirit. We have no excuse for sloppy performance in any area of life. It takes sustained sweat to be capable of serious performance. And Nebuchadnezzar is investing a lot of time and money into this training program, this crop of cadets. It kind of sounds like our military academies. You know, West Point, Annapolis, you get your education, you get your training, and then you owe Uncle Sam a number of years of service to pay for that. Well... Nebuchadnezzar's investing a lot, and he's going to expect a payoff. Verse 6. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hanai, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he gave the name Belteshazzar, to Hanai, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. There's purpose in name-changing. They want to remove all references to Hebrew tradition, to their Hebrew God, to their Hebrew history. And so the first thing they do is change their names to reflect Babylonian gods. They really want to change their identity. They want them to cause them to forget their Hebrew history. That's why they picked them up at a very young age. Daniel and his three friends at this point in time are probably mid-teens. 15, 16, 14, 15, 16, right? And he wants to cause them to forget their history and homeland. We do that as well. When you go in the military service, the first thing you do is cut off all your hair. And they put you in pretty significant basic training to bond you together as a group so you forget your life as a civilian and you understand that your purpose is to fight and win battles. That's the whole point. Well, they had purpose here as well. They wanted them to become Babylonians. So they changed their names. And how they change their names are fascinating. Daniel means, God is my judge. Belteshazzar means, may Bel protect his life. That was one of their chief gods. Hanai means, Yahweh, name of God, is gracious. Shadrach, Hanai was given the name Shadrach, means command of Aku, which is their moon god. So they're naming them after Babylonian gods instead of the God of Israel. Mishael means who is what God is. That's talking about Yahweh. And of course, Meshach means who is what Aku is. So 
The names are similar, but they substitute Babylonian gods in the place of the God of Israel. Azariah means whom Yahweh helps, and Abednego or Abednego means servant of Nebo, which is one of their chief gods. What's fascinating is that Daniel and his three friends don't object to the name changes. Not that they really could have, right? Name changes don't defile you. You really don't have a lot of choice when you're a captive what your captors are going to choose to call you. The other thing that's also very interesting is that secular education, and this was secular to the core, anti-God to the core, as an adult doesn't have to defile you. You are not compelled to believe what you're taught. Both Moses and Joseph were trained by pagan teachers. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's court. Joseph grew up in Pharaoh's court. Daniel is now much older than either Moses or Joseph. When they, well, Joseph was 17 at that point in time. It's fascinating, though. Both Moses and Joseph got extremely good spiritual education as children. Daniel also got very good spiritual education as a children, as we're going to find out, before they encountered pagan culture. So the key point here is, you have to learn to view the culture through the lens of Scripture. You look at your experience through the lens of Scripture. You do not look at Scripture through the lens of your experience. Experience is not authoritative. Scripture is authoritative. I talked to somebody this weekend and they said, well, God told me blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, that's quote with Scripture. Does Scripture justify that position? So you must know the truth of Scripture. We're going to find out Daniel knew God's word. And that was why he's able to stand up to an empire and God used him to change it. Verse 8. This is the first reference we have to Daniel's commitment to truth. But Daniel made up his mind, you can underline that, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Here's the principle. Spiritual purity produces spiritual power, but it requires purpose, planning, and persistence. Spiritual purity produces spiritual power, but it requires purpose, planning, and persistence. Now, on the surface of this, you look, boy, King Nebuchadnezzar is pretty generous, Right? Everybody in this leadership training program eats the same stuff he does, drinks the same wine he drinks. I, when they say choice food and you're the king of an empire, I mean, it's the best of the best. I mean, this is cream brulee stuff. This is not, you know, this is not bread and water. These people are really, he's really eating good food. But Daniel has committed to dietary purity. And he uses the word defile. Defile means to desecrate or to debase or to to make him pure, filthy, or dirty. Here's the problem for Daniel. Eating the king's food is going to violate the Mosaic law, which was given by God to Israel on Mount Sinai about what foods you could eat and what foods you couldn't eat. The king's choice food, number one, was prepared by Gentiles. So it is really, really non-kosher. It is ceremonially unclean. Number two, there's a lot of foods on this list that were forbidden from, by God from the Jews to eat. And they were served, obviously, in a non-kosher manner. Number three, most of this food, if not all of it, would have already been sacrificed to Babylonian idols. Clearly, Daniel couldn't eat food sacrificed to idols. And lastly, drinking strong drink was forbidden by the Mosaic Law. And this was undoubtedly not undiluted wine, right? This was a real thing. So Daniel's about 15 years old. Put yourself in his position. The peer pressure would have been enormous. Enormous. Everybody else is doing it. In politics, what do we say? To, go, to get along, you have to go along, right? You, know, you have to compromise. So Daniel is in a foreign country. He's a captive and he's a teenager. It's probably the very first day of the leadership training program that's going to determine his whole future most things in life are preference items. Yeah, they're morally neutral. If you like your pork tartare, good luck. You know, the car you drive, the house you live in, the hobbies you enjoy, the music you enjoy. Most of that is just preference. Your choice, not morally an issue. It's a morally neutral decision. 
But Daniel understands this is not a morally neutral decision. The key question in all of life is, who is your God? Who is your ultimate authority? Whom will you worship above all else? Yahweh, the God of the Bible, a pagan ruler and his gods, your own success, social approval, etc. Powerful word, it says, but Daniel. In contrast to this pagan culture he was immersed in, Daniel's heart was completely devoted to God. He took God's first commandment very seriously, which is what? You shall have no other gods before me. 600 years later, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I tell you? It says Daniel made up his mind. He determined in his own mind that purity was more important than power. He agreed with the apostle Peter who said, We must obey God rather than men and live with whatever consequences comes as a result of that obedience. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of every man. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. In other words, don't let the world press you into its mold. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to press them into a Babylonian, secular, Satan-influenced mindset. Conform to this world, by the way, means pressures from without. You feel any pressure from this culture? You think? Yeah, there's a lot of pressures from this culture. Renewing your mind is what gives you power from within, power from within to resist that. When you think like God's thinks because you know his word and you act like God acts because you obey his word, you will have God's power to resist the evil in the culture. And people say, oh, this culture's really going to heck in a handbasket or something like that. Well, of course, what did you expect? Did you think godless people are going to suddenly behave like godly people? Not going to happen. The United States is no better than Babylon. Probably worse. If you read Sodom and Gomorrah, you go, boy, they were, that was us 50 years ago. So we really need to get perspective on this and understand that all of us are called to be Daniel in this culture. We have to make up our mind we're going to follow God, period, and let God deal with it. Daniel said, he's pretty open. He says, I'm not going to eat the food because it's going to defile me. My mission is real simple. I'm going to be loyal to God. Fascinating, though, his method. He sought permission. He asked permission from those in authority over his life to accomplish his mission. His goal is, I'm going to please God, and if I can be at peace with people at the same time I please God, that's a good thing. He didn't refuse to obey flat out. He explained his position, and then he appealed to them for a solution. Verse 9, see what God did. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Here's the principle, and it's a crucial one. My responsibility is to obey God. God's responsibility is to take care of the consequences of my obedience. My responsibility is to obey God, period. God's responsibility is to take care of the consequences of my obedience. See, when you're obedient to the Lord, you put yourselves fully into his hands. So I follow God fully, trust what he says, do what he says, God's responsibility is to control all the circumstances that follow my obedience. As he sees fit, not as I see fit. See, Peter was thrown in jail for preaching, and he was okay with that. That was God's allowance for him. Daniel is given favor. When God honored Daniel, honored God, God honored Daniel. 1 Samuel 2.30 states that principle. God's talking and he says, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. It's interesting that Daniel's obeying God and the commander is obeying Nebuchadnezzar. These are in opposition to each other, clearly. And it's interesting that Daniel operates in faith and the commander of the officials operating in fear. Look at verse 10. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord my Lord, the king, 
who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are of your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. You know, you just didn't get fired in Nebuchadnezzar's administration. You got beheaded in his administration. You didn't do the right thing. Verse 11. The overseers told him his problem. Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hanai, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So, He listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine which they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. When you laugh, I assume there's something going on. Here's the principle. Submit to God first, and then seek the welfare of those God has put in authority over your life. Submit to God first, and I know politically some of you are having trouble with this, and then seek the welfare of those that God has put in authority over your life. See, the commander doesn't outright refuse Daniel's request. Daniel says, I want to eat vegetables, not the king's food. The commander says, I'm afraid to do that, Because if your diet makes you appear worse than your compatriots, my head's on the line, right? You know, the implication is Nebuchadnezzar's paying very close attention to this training cohort. And he's monitoring what they're doing and what they're eating and what they look like. Commander's in a real dilemma. So Daniel says, let's try an experiment, right? Is there a way that I can honor God and you can keep your head, right? Same time. He says, I'm going to give God an opportunity to control the outcome and receive the glory. Daniel separates means from ends, and we in the church need to understand this. Nebuchadnezzar's goal was real simple. I want peak mental and physical performance from this cohort, right? That's what I want. And the diet is a means to that end. If I give you the best food, the best drink, I expect that that will lead you to peak performance, physically, mentally, etc. Daniel proposes a test. He says, look, you want peak performance? We do too. We'll eat vegetables and water. The other cohort eats the king's rich food and compare us against your control group after 10 days, and let's find out. That's a pretty low-risk test. Three-year program, 10 days, let's give it a shot, right? So he appeals to the commander to give that a try. And if the test works and they remain pure to the Lord, the Babylonians' performance goals met, Daniel basically says, I'm trusting God to control the outcome. We're going to obey and we're going to trust God to make a win-win situation possible. We know that Daniel trusted the Lord because Daniel doesn't even tell the commander what to do, how the test comes out. He says, you know, Look at the results, look at the empirical evidence at the end of 10 days, and then do whatever you think's best. I mean, he's trusting God to manage the outcome. It would have been, and this is a 15-year-old kid, a teenager, a teenager, right? It would have been so easy for him to be bitter. Think about it. In the last couple of months, he's been wrenched out of his home by a foreign invader carried across the Fertile Crescent about 900 miles, four months, installed in a foreign court where they're pagans and told you are going to be in an administrative training program for leadership in this pagan empire. Deal with it. And he's submissive to God first, and all of us go, well, that's good. And then he's submissive to those God has put in authority over his life. And we say, well, that's not good, unless we agree with those in authority over us. Really? Who's responsible to put people in power, authority over us? God is. 
When you read Romans 13, you say, I am to submit those in authority over me. The only exception is if they command me to do things that God forbids or they forbid me to do things God commands. We must obey God first and then men. And Daniel seeks the welfare of those over him after and only after he chooses to obey God first. And God blessed Daniel. Gave him robust good health that was visibly better than the rest of the cohort that was eating the king's food. Look at verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hanai, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Here's the principle. God's people should be excellent performers since God equips them to accomplish his purposes. God's people should be excellent, superior performers since God equips them to accomplish his purposes. Understand what's going on here. What appears to be happening is that these four Jewish men are being trained to serve the king of Babylon. That's the surface human horizontal level. What's really going on is God has strategically placed these four inside a pagan culture as a witness to the reality of the God of Israel. That's the spiritual reason why they were captured and taken to Babylon in the first place. Nebuchadnezzar is building his earthly empire and God is building his eternal kingdom. And we need to understand that as believers. We get fooled by the human horizontal circumstances of our life routinely. We see things that are happening and we go, oh, what a tragedy, I got this pain and suffering, yada, 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 right? And we don't understand what God's eternal purpose behind this physical stuff is going on. And so we miss God's eternal purpose in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones. When sometimes our loved ones suffer, we say, oh, my job is to fix it. I'm going to go in there and I'm going I'm to reduce their suffering. And sometimes God calls you to do that. He calls you to go in and be of assistance and help. Sometimes God says, get your paws off my child I'm trying to teach them something. And when you go in and fix it, you get in my way because I am maturing them. And in order to mature, they're going to have to deal with the consequences of their foolish choices last month or whatever the case may be. So we must see God's purposes behind what he's doing and cooperate with them. And Daniel does that. Now, in order for God to achieve his purposes, he gives Daniel and his three friends extraordinary wisdom superior reasoning skills, logical analysis, wisdom, supernatural ability to understand dream, dreams, etc., etc. He gives dreams to Nebuchadnezzar and gives Daniel the ability to interpret those dreams. See, why would God do that? Well, think about it. You're Nebuchadnezzar, you got a 15-year-old kid in your cadet program. 15-year-old kid comes up and says, you know, I think you should do X, Y, Z. I think this is a smart thing for you to do. If your teenager told you that, would you listen? <laughs> of course not. But if God gives Nebuchadnezzar dreams he can't understand, and they bother him, and then this 15-year-old kid comes in and interprets them, God is now speaking to the king through the mouthpiece of a 15-year-old who's obedient. One of the reasons God never, or Nebuchadnezzar never would have listened to Daniel without direct testimony about God is Nebuchadnezzar despised Yahweh. Why would Nebuchadnezzar even listen to a captive? Nebuchadnezzar's rationale is real simple. 
My God's bigger and badder than your God. I just trashed your city. I just ruined your country. You want me to tell you that your God is stronger than my God and we just beat the tar out of you? Really? So God works around that. Just simply gives him dreams and visions and things that bother him and then accurate interpretations that are clearly supernatural so God can speak through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his purposes through the Babylonian Empire and we're going to spend, Lord willing, a lot of time on that. Second Chronicles 16.9 is a word for all of us. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God has purposes he wants to accomplish through you. But he has to know that you're loyal and obedient before he's going to give you the assignment. The key here, whose heart is completely his. Totally sold out. Completely without reservation. Fully. When your heart belongs, your loyalty belongs only to God, then he can entrust you with position and power and influence and you won't be corrupted by it. So Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of three years, does the final exam himself. This is an oral exam. He sits down with every one of these cadets, one-to-one, face-to-face, and he cross-examines them. Sounds like a hands-on ruler to me. He wanted to know what's the outcome of this training program. If I'm going to put these people to positions of authority in my kingdom, I'm going to find out who's bluffing and who can cut the mustard. Now, it must have been a pretty tough interview. If you're interviewing with the king and they don't like your answers, he has a habit of taking people's heads off, as we'll see. What we're going to find out next week is that there's a large number of government officials on the payroll in Babylon who are charlatans. They're bluffers. They're, quote, government workers who are not really working. And Nebuchadnezzar's inherited this cohort of magicians from his daddy. And he thinks a lot of them are faking it. And he's right. We're going to find out what he does about that next week at that point. So he personally interviews every one of these candidates because he doesn't want any more people in the payroll who can't add value to his kingdom. And you say, well, how does all this work? Well, God had arranged to bring Daniel and his three friends in front of Nebuchadnezzar because he's going to work through those four people to accomplish his purposes. And he says they were 10 times better. That means far superior, superlative, and they were still teenagers. What it's demonstrating is that they had the Holy Spirit who gave them everything they needed in order to accomplish God's purposes. You have unlimited power and authority living in your life right now in the person of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that God has not called you and I to do that we don't have the power to do if we're willing to obey. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine says, Do you see a man, a woman, skilled in their work? They will stand before kings. They will not stand before obscure men. The point is, don't waste your life on anything less than service to the king of kings. Why would you waste your life on anything less? If you're going to trade your days for something, we're all trading days. We've been trading days for stuff for decades. Don't trade your days for anything less than service to the king of kings. Daniel is going to show us an enormous amount of biographical example on that. Okay, let's summarize and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, and I know that some of you are going to say, Brad, all this chatter about potential is fine, but I'm too old for that. That's baloney. Some of you are in the last third of your life and it's going to be supposed to be the most productive third of your life coming up. Potential, your potential is wasted without preparation and training. So care enough to prepare. God has plans for every single one of us going forward. I don't care how old you are. He has plans. When his plans are done with you, you won't be here. If you're breathing, you have work to do. Get on your knees and ask him to show you what it is. Number two, spiritual purity produces spiritual power. Guess what? Purity doesn't happen by accident. It requires purpose, 
planning, and persistence. Daniel and his three friends have that. Number three, my responsibility is to obey God. God's responsibility is to deal with the consequences of my obedience. Many, many times we decide whether we're going to obey or not based on what we think the consequences are going to be. If I obey, I could experience rejection or I could experience isolation or I could, you know, I mean, we're not trusting God with the consequences of our obedience. That's a problem. Our job is to obey, let God deal with the consequences of our obedience. When you obey, you put yourself in his hands. Number four, submit to God first and then seek the welfare of those God has put in authority over you. This is so basic. If you are not praying for wisdom for those who are in positions of authority over you of your life, you're in sin. Do you think the people in positions over authority and over your life need wisdom? If they have wisdom, your life is going to be easier and more honorable. Pray for wisdom for those in positions of authority over life. Pray that they will submit to the Lord. And lastly, before Tom comes up, God's people should be superior performers since God equips them to accomplish his purposes. Okay, we've got enough, I think, for the next 167 hours. Read ahead. I would encourage you, Daniel's only 12 chapters. You can read through that in an hour. Try it for a week. Ask God to open your mind. It'll be remarkable. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be in chapter 2. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.